Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. With Amanda Howard and Robert McKnight. Hello, true crime lovers, and welcome to another episode of Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. Amanda Howard, the Serial Killer Whisperer, is with us. Hello, Amanda. Hello, Robert. Another new intro. I loved that one. (laughs) (laughs) I do like to mix it up. Um, We're doing BTK Part 3. Yes, we are. So it's a long journey and there's still way more to come, but it's been absolutely fascinating and everyone seems to be as fascinated as I've been, so that's really great to hear. Yeah, actually, the reaction has been phenomenal and it's actually been interesting with our Patreon friends who get it that week earlier how their feedback is helping us drive the additional episodes. So we love that (laughs) feedback. Yeah, it is good. It's, it sort of shows me that what I'm sort of showing them via podcast is is what they want to see. And of course, now we've added a bit of video uh, into the Patreon group and they're getting a couple of extra episodes and uh, there's a couple more ideas coming and we're all going on a bit of a journey on the um, Patreon page as well. There's a couple of little mysteries that I'm working on that they're all involved in too. Hey, it's fascinating. I love what's going on over there. It's, if you want to be part of it, just go to patreon.com slash mwmconfessions. And at the moment, we're offering a 10% discount if you take out an annual subscription. The BTK is coming up shortly, but first let's get into the news. And Claremont serial killer Bradley Robert Edwards has failed to lodge an appeal by the court deadline, seemingly bringing to an end the long-running case. Edwards, 52, was sentenced in December last year to life behind bars with a minimum of 40 years to be served after he was found guilty of murdering childcare worker Jane Rimmer, 23, in 1996, and solicitor Kira Glennon, 27, in 1997. Amanda, are you surprised he didn't lodge an appeal? I think everyone's going to be surprised by this because we just assume that they're just going to automatically go into an appeals process. But there's been a couple of issues here. One is that legal aid, which is the financial aid for legal representation in Australia, has said, no, they're not going to uh, front the the costs for that. And secondly, um, there is a reasoning behind that he's being actually quite recalcitrant and he's refusing to go for um, psychological evaluation and he's refusing to do any sort of in-prison details and anything like that. He's just sort of sitting there and saying, this is where I am and this is where I'll stay. So he's really being ignorant and arrogant, which is kind of what we expect after seeing him at trial when he refused to testify there as well. So I think maybe in the future he may try, but I think it's sort of those doors are almost closed now. Our best bet is that if more information is found about Sarah Spears, who who was a murder that he was found not guilty of, Uh, purely because there wasn't enough evidence to commit. So um, there is options that may come up, but I really think that these doors are now closed and he's going to sit there and rot. 
It's interesting. I had never thought about this, but I didn't realise legal aid could choose not to represent you. Yeah, well, they can. So um, they have to uh, believe that an appeal would be viable. And in this case, it wasn't. So he has actually literally said by whatever representatives he has that he's actually not going to appeal. So um, there's something going on there. And I will try and contact him in the near future just to see if I can get anything from him. But Mm. it's interesting to see. Some of them have done that. David Burney in Perth did the same thing. He just went, yes, I'm guilty and and shut it all down and didn't appeal. and then, like, years later he appealed for other things and, and so did his um, de facto wife, Catherine. But I think we may have heard the end of Bradley Edwards, but I really don't think so. OK, let's move on. And high-profile serial killer Wang Xiong was executed in China. His death sentence for rape and intentional killing was approved by the Supreme People's Court. Wang was sentenced to death for multiple counts of intentional homicide and he was also sentenced to 15 years in prison for rape. The court combined the sentences in the death penalty. Amanda, tell me about this killer. Uh, well, um, Wang actually was killing between 1993 and 95, and he actually went to jail several times during that time for the rapes, but he actually kept getting out and continued to rape and kill. So um, they realised that this was a guy that wasn't going to ever be rehabilitated or, or show remorse for what he's done. So he um, was sentenced to death. Now, he had uh, committed four rapes and three killings and an attempted killing during that time. So that is a lot in a short two-year period mm. um but yeah he 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 kept getting released and he would go and rape and kill again so you know finally he actually turned himself in um but it hang didn't, on is this the guy we've difference. spoken about no previously? no okay. this is another one right. <laughs> yeah no there's been a few my um my china section of my database is getting bigger because we're now finding out more of these cases and we're getting them in in almost real time i like this is between 93 and 95. So this is actually quite recent for data from China. So um, it's the best that we can do. And he has finally uh, been put to death, but he thought that by handing himself in that they would take the death penalty off the table, but they didn't. Interesting. It's Russia that don't believe they've got serial killers, isn't that right? Uh, I mean, that was what was happening when uh, Andre Chikatilo was killing. That was in the 80s. So they believed that this was a westernised crime and that they didn't actually have serial killers. But they come in number two to America on yeah, my database. Right. So they're right up there. So, <laughs> And that's the ones that we know about because we have to remember that, you know, with the Eastern Bloc and, and all of that, that we don't actually hear a lot of details from those countries, especially historical. We're finding more about their killers from now, um, like the maniacs. I'm not going to even try and attempt to use their proper name, but people that know, um, I think it's three guys, one hammer, you, you will know that case. Um, there's recent cases that we do know about, but basically... There is only a few that we've heard about before, Chikatilo, but we're hearing about lots more now. But slowly this information is getting out purely because of journalism has got a bit more freedom, not a great deal, but they do have more freedom that we are learning about the historical cases and, um, you know, we're starting to get newspapers uploaded online um, in archive um, databases like I use. And um, so there is some coming out, but they did say they didn't, but yes, they do. That's a way around, a long way around that conversation. No, it's interesting. I would have thought the competitiveness between Russia and the United States, Russia would be like, oh yeah, we've got more, we've got more serial killers than you, America. Yeah, no, they went the opposite way. Yeah, yeah, I just let it go. (laughs) Yeah, no, that that they actually went the other way, saying you know that that 
Americans are weak and stupid and that's why they have serial killers rather than saying that we have more. But we never know. They may actually have more. We just don't know about them. Mm. Well, renowned serial killer Dennis Nielsen has confessed to a series of new crimes in an autobiography set to be released three years after his death. Nielsen was known to have murdered at least 12 mostly homosexual men and boys during his six-year spree from 1978 to 1983. However, only seven victims were ever identified, leaving the true number a mystery. Nielsen's book, penned from behind bars, details a previously unknown sexual assault on a drunken soldier and two murders by strangulation. His unpublished memoir, History of a Drowning Boy, is based on some 6,000 pages of notes he left to his prison pen pal. Amanda, do you think we're getting the truth here? Um, I think we might be getting some. It's, it's more of one of those control issues like, ha-ha, I'm going to my grave with, with these extra details. Um, but I know that um, a lot of his memoir was actually published online on a blog many, many years ago. I've still got a, a couple of pages accessible still. Oh. Um, so some of this information won't be new and it's been something that they've said before. But we know that serial killers do this, that they want to go down for more numbers when they know there's going to be no repercussions. I mean, you know, I, I keep harking back to Henry Lee Lucas who who confessed to like 650 killings and they think he may have done one. I mean, yes, that, but this isn't that. No, Dennis this Nielsen is... did. That there has always been a belief that he murdered more people than we know. Yeah, I mean, and when so... there's no evidence left because he's, um, you know, flushing them down toilets and things like that, of course, it's mm. going to be hard to ever pinpoint a number. So, is it what I'm asking is is this more believable with him confessing to these additional murders, or do you think it's just him trying to up his count, which just never seemed to be his motivation to me? Well, um, we know that he did confess to more, and we know even those that watched um, Des that, that that series that was on a couple of months ago that um, he just sort of come up with a figure and said, "Oh yeah, maybe fifteen or 16. and they've sort of gone through that. You know, he got charged with six because they could verify six, but uh, there's always that unknown quantity, and there is never a way to really know. And um, does he get anything out of this? Maybe that that final pleasure that he, he sort of screwed with their. Head heads but at the same time um what does he gain except for that pleasure so i mean does he need to is this a way for police to now go and close books on cases which we know they do with the death of a serial killer i don't know it 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 could be either way i'm i'm tending to think that he had far more uh far more victims than we gave him credit for purely because uh he had such a good way of dispensing of them over the years including you know cutting them up he buried some in the yards then um dug them back up once they had rotted enough and and set some on fire and then flushing down the toilets as well so he he had a very good uh, disposal technique so by all means there's definitely more and this is probably his final hurrah okay all right well time to move on to our psychological profile part three of btk we'll be right back Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
shocking celebrity secrets. Justin Bieber's word against mine. Backstage drama. All of a sudden, Dolly Parton walks into the room. And controversial opinions. I'm not saying she's been approached. I'm saying this is what I'm hearing is the crunching options. TV Black Box, the podcast where people who've worked in the TV industry spill their juiciest stories. Julie used to like to drink on set. TV Black Box, available in your favourite podcast feed. Now to part three of our psychological profile on Dennis Rader, also known as BTK. As you know by now, BTK stands for Bind, Torture, Kill. And Radar was responsible for the deaths of 10 known victims between 1974 and 1991. Radar was charged with the 10 murders in March 2005, and in June he pleaded guilty to all 10 murders and in court described the murders in detail. And that is where we continue the case. Amanda, tell us about the courtroom scene. Okay, well, it doesn't change much from episode to episode. We do get a couple of different vision switches, I think, Robert, you would call it being the expert in that. <laughs> Maybe uh, different camera angles, different Yes, cuts. there you go. <laughs> um, but Raider is actually basically the only person on camera for most of the footage that we have. There's others around him and he, he has a lawyer on either side of him. He has a female lawyer on his left and a male lawyer on his right, though I think at one point they did change, but not yet in this section. Um, but everyone else is out of focus because it's made sure that this camera is focusing on Raider and it's sort of like a bus shot. So it was from about his waist up. He's wearing a cream linen jacket, a white shirt and tie and has uh, dark trousers on. He's clean shaven except for his goatee, which is quite full and and very hairy actually compared to his eyebrows which are only half eyebrows but that's a that's a theory and discussion we've had on patreon about that um he's actually wearing his glasses which we see and he actually has some trouble listening at times and we actually see him sort of lean one ear towards the judge to make sure he's getting what he says and also sometimes he mm. asks the judge to repeat things even though he knows exactly what they're talking about he still asks the judge to repeat purely because of his hearing isn't that great that's really interesting. I never knew that about him, Amanda. Yeah, well, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's from uh, when he was in the Marines. I don't know if this is something from an occupational hazard or what, or just old age. He's um, not that he's that old. Um, but, yeah, a, a couple of times he sort of leans his ear to sort of, you know, I didn't quite hear that properly. Mm. Well, in the last two episodes, we've gone through the murders of the Otero family, as well as the murder of Catherine Bright and the attempted murder on her brother Kevin. Look, Radar then stopped killing. The close encounter with Kevin escaping, well, that likely caused him to lay low for a while. But then in 1977, three years after the bride scene, he killed again. We turn our attention now to the murder of Shirley Vianne Relford. Now let's turn to count number six. In that count, they claim on March 17th, 1977, in Cedric County, Kansas, that you unlawfully killed Shirley Vianne maliciously, willfully, deliberately, and with premeditation by strangulation, inflicting injuries from which she did die on March 17, 1977. Can you tell me what you did on that day? As before, uh, Vianne was a, uh, actually on that one, she was completely random. Okay, you've asked me to stop the tape there. He's barely spoken. 
you've already spotted something. Yeah, well, in the last two episodes, we've seen him sort of tell the story as if he's reading a newspaper. He's just sort of um, monotone. He's not excited. He doesn't care. But now he's keen to talk and he's already boasting that this was completely random. Like, I, I'm so good now. I can just go in and do this sort of stuff. You know, this is him showing the bravado, you know, but it also shows something else. It shows that he has that compulsion to kill. So he had fought it. He was still stalking victims and we'll go into that, but he didn't actually have a plan in place for her. So He's pretty much decided he was going to kill on impulse and this can actually be dangerous but in his voice we can also tell that it was powerful for him that he decided to sort of almost go for broke on on someone who happened to cross his paths via a very weird way. Without knowing what happens, is he more excited about this one because it doesn't fall apart like the other murders? It doesn't fall apart as badly, <laughs> but he's still not good at what he does. And this one has a couple of extra characters involved too. Um, but yeah, this one, he's he's like he was going back, you know, uh, like an addict who who abstains for so long, and then they go and get that next hitch that they tried to fight. It's that 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 drug high that that you can get that he's actually feeling with this case and going through it. There's definitely a different um, mojo that we've got here than we've had in in the last five murders. Okay, interesting. Let's continue with the court case. Uh, there was actually someone across from Dylan's was a potential target. Uh, it was called Project Green, I think. I had project numbers assigned to it. Uh, project Green, did he have a military background at all? Well, he was actually in the US Air Force. I think I said Marines before, but Air Force. Um, and, but he actually did that after he dropped out of college. So he was sort of just didn't know what he really what, wanted to do. And, and that was an option. So he actually rose to the rank of Staff Sergeant and he actually received medals for good behaviour, which is good, I guess. Um, but these projects, it, the, these names that he uses is more about taking his fantasies to that next level. It's not that they are um, murders, they're projects. And that's a very interesting word to use. It just shows how he differentiates them from uh, the ethical standpoint that his moral compass isn't seeing this as bad. Okay, let's continue. And that particular day, I uh, drove to Dylan's parking parking lot watched this particular residence and then got out of the car and walked over to it. Uh, it's probably the police report, the address. I don't remember the address now. Knocked. Nobody nobody answered it. So I was all keyed up. So I just uh, started going through the neighborhood. I'd been through the neighborhood before. I kind of knew uh, a little bit of the layout of the neighborhood. Uh, I've been through the back alleys, knew where some certain people live. Um, while I uh, was walking down Hydraulic, uh, I met a, a young woman. <laughs> Ask him if he ID some pictures. Uh, kind of was a rust, I guess, a roost, as you call it, and uh, kind of feel it out. And I uh, saw where he went. And I went to another address and knocked on the door. Nobody opened the door. So I just noticed where he went and went to that house and we went from there. So he has literally walked up and down a street, knocking on doors, looking for someone to kill. Yeah, I mean, this is starting to sound really dumb, isn't it? Like I was so excited that he was going to be an intelligent serial killer and then we hear that he went knocking on doors. Hello, is there someone there I can kill? I mean, like really, he he could have been found, he could have been caught, uh, he was 
going from door to door. Anyone could have opened it. And if a, a man opened the door, he might have come up where the ruse then and then gone to the next door. But then someone's already seen his face. So it's pretty brazen. I mean, other serial killers have done this. Richard Ramirez was looking for open windows. Richard Chase basically went door to door. Uh, there is discussions that maybe the Mansons did the same thing, the Manson family, I should say. Um, but it's this extremely risky behavior but as he says you know he, he was ready for it he was pumped to do this and this is when they become erratic and don't go for their learned behaviors they're actually going on that basis instinct and you know this could have become a very short crime spree and we could have found him in 1977 but as we know he got away with it but it just proves how brazen they can be because they think that you know you haven't caught me before I'm going to do the same thing because you're not going to catch me this time either mm. I find it fascinating how you get disappointed by these killers. <laughs> I just I want I want one that's going to challenge me and that I get confused by and I'm I'm still waiting. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, he talks further about the projects. Now you, you call these projects uh, with these sexual fantasies also. Potential hits. Yeah, in my world, that's what I call them. Right. So you call projects hits. All right, and, and why did you have these potential hits? Was this to gratify some sexual interest? Or... Yes, sir. His, his projects, yes, sir, they were my sexual fantasies. He sounds so clinical when he talks about it. Yeah, and it's something that we keep seeing time and again. You know, they really don't do a lot of elaboration, you know, and it, it, it's just that we know that they have these incredibly detailed fantasy lives. I mean, a lot of people would have seen the photos that Raider took of himself dressed in a clothing that was similar to those of his victims and taking photos of himself being bound, put into graves and all of this sort of stuff. So they have this detailed fantasy life, but at the same time they keep that hidden and they've known to keep it hidden all their lives that they don't let that out now. They will explain what they believe who is listening needs to hear to understand, but they don't go into that sort of... Um vivid fantasy I mean they they often live in that twilight between fantasy and reality and they know what's normal and they know what's not normal so for him to say yeah that's my sexual fantasies end of sentence that is how they do it they, they don't want to share what goes on in their mind they want you to understand that they're different and don't ask any more questions there's no admission to what is fueling this that he's saying yes I'm going from door to door with my cock in my hand masturbating because this is what I want to do he doesn't tell you that part he just says I would knock on on the door he had a briefcase in his hand a tie on and he would look like a normal businessman going door to door he knows that that's the part of the reality that we want to hear he doesn't tell us the part of his reality that fueled all of this you know but it's about all all of those emotions it's about packing it all away you know he knows the smells he knows the emotions he knows, you know, the ejaculation that happens. He knows the pleasure, the fear. It's all catalogued, but it actually never simmers to the surface. We don't get to see that, you know. And so when you're sort of removed from that, all we get is his bare bones conversation. And we'll see this again and again with his yes sirs that, that he peppers in. But he doesn't go through the parts that he enjoyed. He doesn't talk about the torture. He just talks about the binding and the killing because he knows that that is an A plus B equals C. He doesn't want to go into those other parts that is what makes him continue to do this i'm a little confused if he was going door to door knocking on door with his penis out well i'm not saying he did but it was it, he would have been pretty hardcore for it yep oh okay 
Right. Yeah, like, yeah, figuratively speaking, he, right. he would have, if a woman come to have the front door, it would have been out. Right. So, you know, it's just part of that, that, that terror that he can instill that would actually encourage his fantasies. He would go and sit outside these homes and masturbate, you know, like in, in his car and things like that. They do this, that they sort of have this, um, this ongoing sexual urge that they can, they can sate by, by doing what they need to, to, to relieve themselves until mm. they can actually do the final big act. Gotcha. All right. The judge then finally asks Radar about entering the Vian Relford home. So, as I'm to understand it, then on the 17th of March, 1977, you saw this little boy go into a residence, mm-hmm. and you tried another residence. <coughs> no one was there. You tried another residence. No one was there. So right, you went right, to the residence right, with the right. little boy. And I watched. I watched where he went. What happened then? Uh, after I tried this once residence, nobody came to the door. I went to this house where he went in, knocked on the door, and told him I was a private detective. Uh, showed him a picture that I had just showed the boy and asked him if they could ID the picture. And at that time, I, I had the gun here, and I just kind of forced myself in. I just walked in, just opened the door and walked in, and then pulled what, a pistol. What gun? What pistol? Uh, 357 Magnum. So you only had one gun with the pistol? Yes, sir. Uh-huh. What happened then? Uh, I told uh, Mrs. Espayan uh, that uh, I had a problem with uh, sexual fantasies, that I was going to tie her up, and that uh, I might have to tie the kids up, and that she would cooperate with us, cooperate with me at that time. Uh, we went back. Uh, she was extremely nervous. I think she even smoked a cigarette. And we went back to uh, one of the back, back areas of the porch, explained to her that I had done this before, and uh, you know, I think she was, at that point in time, I think she was sick because she had a night robe on. And I think I remember right, she was she had been sick. And I, I think she came out of the bedroom when I went in the house. So he gives her two stories again, but does get the victim to remain calm. Yeah, I mean, it's the oldest trick in the book. And regardless, you know, the nobody moved, nobody gets hurt. People think that by complying and being calm, they may get out of it alive. And I'm telling you, you can't now, blame them for thinking that. I know, but it's not the right way. Kick, fight, and scream. Because if they have any intention of killing you, they're going to kill you anyway. Yeah. And so at least go down fighting. I mean, we see this, like he is tying them up and they're going, okay, tie us up and, and we'll sit still. Get one of the kids to jump out, out the window, go screaming down the neighbourhood. I know it's simple to say this sitting here in my creepy-ass podcast room <laughs> saying all of this, um, but, you know, she thinks that by allowing him to attack her, she can save her children, and I totally get it, and no doubt I would probably do the same thing at the same time, but I'm telling people now don't. You know, it's, it's not worth the risk to be kind and gentle hoping that that will get you out if they're going to kill you they're going to kill you anyway some of them may not have wanted to kill you and then may subsequently do that because you have reacted but you are more likely to get away if you fight than you are to sit and be compliant regardless of what people will tell you you know well you're leaving them to the final powerhouse if they're going to kill you or not kill you Exactly. But, you know, you just got to fight. And and this is, I mean, it's a learned behaviour and it's something that um, I actually go through on a Patreon video I've just done but I haven't uploaded yet, that um, women are actually told to be compliant, that we're told to say sorry. The amount of times that people say sorry for things and it's like, oh, my God, 
I, I have no reason to be sorry, but I'm saying sorry because I don't want to upset someone else. And women have been raped and murdered because they didn't want to offend a guy by saying no thanks, you know. And, and this is something that has been taught to us generations and generations that I'm generalising and people are going to send me hate mail. I get that. But we have to no, let say no, something get away. And, and not on yeah. the rape thing, but, you know, you'll bump into someone and it's completely their fault because they're looking at their phone and you've actually tried to avoid them, but you'll say sorry. Yep, yep. And you it's... know, so I'm not comparing that to a rape or, no. or anything yeah. like that, but I'm trying to say how we are conditioned to say sorry until that arsehole looks up and go, as you should be. Yeah. Well, hang on, fucker, you were the one reading the, <laughs> the mobile. Oh, now we've hit a nerve. <laughs> We've hit a nerve, but it is. It, <laughs> but it is something that 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 we need to be aware of. Like I have started so many emails saying, "Oh, sorry, I didn't get to this earlier." It's like, no, I was busy earlier. Here's your here's your work. You know, like we we have to learn that we don't need to apologise for our life and what we do and how and how we think. I mean, that doesn't mean go out and be outrageously revolting and kill people. No, but I, I will mean, never apologise to you again. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> but it is something that is important and this is how they sometimes get their victims is because they know mm. they're going to be compliant because we're too afraid to stand up because we don't want to be seen as rude yeah fair enough all right radar continues talking about what he did with the children so anyway, we went back to the, her bedroom and I proceeded to tie the kids up. And they started crying and got real upset. So I said, oh, this is not going to work. So we moved them to the bathroom. She helped me. And then I tied the door shut. We put some toys and uh, blankets and odds and ends in there for the kids, make them as comfortable as we could. Sorry, is this babysitter confessions? He sounds like a babysitter, not the killer, not the serial killer that's in the house. I know. Can you believe this? He's making himself look like he's this nice man and everything. You know, this is the hiding in plain sight that we see. Hmm. So, Robert, I I have to ask you this. Did you realise how normal serial killers would be when we started this podcast? You know, can you imagine them giving toys to children to play with whilst he goes and and, and rapes the mum? No, I didn't. Um... I mean, we expect them to be savage monsters. Yeah, we do. And, you know, it's funny. When you see documentaries on serial killers, they always look for the meanest um, photo, they, the darkest photo, the one where they're scowling. That's the photo that we're led to believe a serial killer looks like. And doing this podcast, I see photos of them dressed as a clown, although that was creepy. Um <laughs> You know, we we see them in normal everyday circumstances. You don't think of them having families or children, you know, or or even being part of the church group. And what I have seen through this podcast is that serial killers come in all shapes and sizes. Yeah, I mean, they can stand on on a stairwell and talk to their neighbours whilst they've got a head in their bag. I mean, but they appear normal. You know, it's mm. not like, oh, my God, Ed Kemp is coming. I, I, I should run away. Um, this is how they get away with it because you're not going to get into a car with a monster. You're not going to open a door to a, a crazy-looking psycho guy. But the guy in a tie with a briefcase, you're going to open the door to. And this is what they learn. They, they have this superficial charmingness that sort of creates this, this sense of safety and that's how they, they attack. Yeah, it's fascinating. Look, um, let's go back to the tape. The kids are locking the bathroom door and Radar turns his attention back to Shirley Vian. 
tied the uh, we uh, tied one of the bathroom doors shut so they couldn't open it, and we shoved. She went back and helped me shove the bed up against the other bathroom door, and then I proceeded to uh, tie her up. Uh, she got sick, threw up, um, got her a glass of water, comforted her a little bit. He gets her a glass of water and comforts her. Yeah, I mean, well, this is what he's telling us that he did. You know, we have to remember, too, that he's trying to minimise the violent events. I mean, he probably got her a glass of water because she was freaking out and sobbing and vomiting and in so much fear of what's going on that he needed her to be calmer so he could do what he wanted to do. We have to remember sure. that part of this. It's not like, oh, hang on, I've got a tickle. Joe, mind just grabbing me a glass of water from the kitchen? Yeah, gotcha. All right, let's keep listening. And then I went ahead and tied her up and then uh, put a bag, a bag over her head and strangled her. All right. Was this a plastic bag also? Mm, yes, sir. I think it was. But I could be wrong in that. Okay. So another bag over the head and he strangled her again. Where's the T in BTK? Exactly. We know that he psychologically tortured the Otero kids by telling them they were going to die. Um, and no doubt he did the same with most of these victims once he had them. But, you know, he's he's saying that he's calm, but he wasn't calm in these situations. He's in control. He likely told Shirley that um, she was going to be raped, she was going to die. He likely threatened the lives of her children and told her that they were going to be left without a mother. I mean, he would have done all mm. of this. But there's more to it that he's not telling us in these stories and I know that there is all the police uh, interviews which we don't have access to that would go into more of these details but he's just telling us about the glass of water you know he has to tell us about that but he doesn't tell us about the tea in BTK he's not telling us about the torture but we can just sort of surmise what was going on while he has these people tied up okay so he's then asked for more detail about the way he killed her Put a bag. It was something. I'm sure it was a plastic bag, yeah. You say bag over her head and strangled her. What did you strangle her with? Uh, I actually, I think on that, I had tied, uh, tied her legs to the uh, bedpost and worked up with the rope all the way up, and then what I had left over, I looped over her neck. So he made sure he had enough to strangle her with. Yes, and it's interesting that he actually says that. You know, he uh, starts at her feet, so so she's slowly being incapacitated by her killer. You know, her feet first, then her knees and her arms, and then enough left to strangle her. So this is a slow and terrifying way to die. This is part of the torture. This is, you know, he, he didn't start by sort of, you know, um, putting a gag on her or anything. He starts with the tying of the feet. So, you know, and he's threatening her to stay still or he's going to do more harm to her. So, you know, it's... It's during this time that she would realise that he is going to kill her. And, you know, that bag over her head would have been that sort of final moment where she knew that she's never going to see her kids again and she's going to die. And purely mm. because she said, I'll be calm and, you know, do what you need to so you, you can leave us all safe. And, you know, it wasn't to be. Mm. All right, let's pick up where we left off. So use this uh, rope to strangle. Yes, I think I think it's the same one that I tied her body with. What happened then? Well, the, uh, the kids were really banging on the door, hollering, screaming, and uh, and then the telephone rang, and they had talked about earlier that the neighbor was going to check on them. So I cleaned everything up real quick, like, and got out of there, left, and went back into my car. Hang on. So he left the kids alive. Now, didn't he assume? that one of them, if not all of them, 
had seen his face, isn't it a risk to leave them alive? Well, he had actually followed one of the boys into the house. That's how he chose this house was because he, he did a ruse saying, you know, oh, I'm a detective in the area. Can you look at these photos, son? And right. then the kid would have said to mum, oh, you know, mum's inside, come and come and talk to her about it. And that's how he chose this house, you know. But these kids aren't small enough to not know, but they're not old enough to sort of be very technical, you know. But I think it's dumb luck again. I think he really was getting so cocky that he just went, I'll just clean up and leave and I'll, the, the, the kids won't recognise me. Well, a man, last episode, a man saw his face and the the sketch was nothing like him. Exactly. I mean, you'd be laughing at it because it really looks nothing like him. And um, there are some that come later on that people said, oh, yeah, that looks more like him. But if you put a picture of him at that age against these photos, no one would have gone, oh, that's Dennis down the road. Absolutely not. Mm. Well, Radar then gets a little peeved with the judge's next question as he rushes to talk over him. You say you cleaned everything. Well, I mean, put my stuff, I had a briefcase, uh, whatever I had laying around, ropes, tape, cords, I threw that in there, my, you know, whatever, you know, that I had that I brought in the house. Had you brought that to the uh, Bright residence also? Or... Now, there is some, there, I, I think it was the basic stuff, but I don't remember bringing total stuff like I did to some of the others. Uh, was this a kit that you had prepared? Yeah, I, or, yes, I called my hip kit. All right, sir, you left the Bayan residence and had you parked your vehicle near yeah, there? Yeah, still in the same parking lot there at Dillon's at uh, Hydraulic and, what is that, Harry? Lincoln, Lincoln, Lincoln and, Lincoln and uh, Hydraulic. Why is he pissed off with the minor details the judge wants? talk about picking up a roll of tape he wants to talk about how he gets his victims and how he killed them he doesn't want to talk about where he put them and that did he bring tape here or didn't he bring tape or did he have the rope with him or did he grab something while he was there he doesn't care about all all of this this has already been over before this is just the final sort of statements that he has to make before there is sentencing Mm -hmm. but it's just you know he just he this is immaterial to him he doesn't care or know if he bought tape or not and let's face it he, he took two guns to one case and 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 shot a guy twice in the head and it still didn't kill him and this time he's only taken one gun and he's walked from door to door finding someone to kill this is not someone who is thinking about did i bring the tape with me or not yeah right gotcha now he hang on a second he also mentioned having a briefcase yeah that's yeah. significant isn't it it is because he what what he's doing is pre, he's presenting as a businessman. You know, he's looking like the local vacuum cleaner salesman who's going from door to door. No one's going to stop. Yeah, no one's going to stop a guy with a um, briefcase going from door to door. That's his disguise it, by looking normal. He's disguising himself to look normal. So you know, it's not like he's you know in in dirty scrubs or um, in in you know, a, a lesser, like a blue-collar worker or something. He's someone who's actually there to look like he's 
belongs and and he does and even his neighbors say hey it was a bit of an asshole because he was so neat and petite about everything that everyone else was sort of judged against what he didn't he would actually dob them into council where he worked to have them because their their, their lawns weren't um, mowed quick enough and things like that so he's you know he's looking like he could be from you know one of the religious door knocking groups you know just going from door to door isn't going to look unusual when you've got a briefcase and tie with you and so this is how he has shown us how they can get away with things by by blending in you don't Mm. see a killer who's blended in Mm. the judge then asks about the next victim nancy fox whom he murdered in december 1977 that's nine months after shelley's death before i get to that amanda radar seems to be not holding up so well now no, he's not. I mean, we're only about, um, we're not even at the half half an hour point of this interview and we've got three episodes out of it so far. But he's actually starting to fidget. Um, he's not listening to have the judge as much as he was. He's actually drinking quite a lot of water now and he keeps patting his um, forehead with, with, with a tissue or something. He's sweating. He's, he's not getting um, the satisfaction out of this that he wants and he's been standing now for so long and no doubt there's all of the hullabaloo that goes on before the recording started being sworn in, um, people identifying each side of the, of the case um, coming forward and the, and the teams going through who's there and who's not there and all this sort of stuff. So he's probably standing for about an hour at this point and it's a lot of time to be standing there still going through all of this stuff and it's exhausting him. That's very interesting. Let's take a listen once again. All right, in count seven, it is claimed that on the 8th day of December 1977, Cedric County, Kansas, that you unlawfully killed a human being, that being Nancy Fox, maliciously, willfully, deliberately, and with premeditation by strangulation, inflicting injuries from which the said Nancy Fox did die on December 8th, 1977. Can you tell me what you did on that day? Here in Cedric County. Nancy Fox was another one of the projects. when I was uh, trolling the area, I noticed her go in the house one night. Uh, sometimes I'm in, uh, anyway, I put her down as a potential victim. Um, uh, let me ask you one thing, Mr. Rader. You used that term when you were patrolling the area. What do you mean by that? It's called stalking or trolling. So hang on. Nancy was also stalked or trolling as he calls it. Yeah, and then the judge says that he thinks he's saying patrolling, but what he actually means is trawling. So it's about casting a net like a fish, you know, and catching the ah. big fish. He's trawling. He's not trolling. Right. But he doesn't realise that that's dumb. But, you know, uh, this is what he means when he's, he's saying he's, he's, he's trawling. He's actually trawling. I wonder trawling. you're so disappointed in him. Oh, it gets worse. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, look, Radar then goes into a tirade and tries to school the judge in ways of a serial killer. So you were not uh, working in any form or fashion? Well, I don't know. If if you read much about serial killers, they go through what they call the different phases. Uh, That's one of the phases they go through as a a trolling stage. Basically, you're looking for a victim at that time. And you could be trolling for months or years. But once you lock in on a certain person, you become stalking. And that might be several of them, but you really home in on that person. You know, they, they basically become the, that's, that's the victim. Or the, that's what you want to do. Wow. I mean, just wow. 
Yeah, I mean, this says all that you need to know about this pathetic guy. I mean, he's like, look, I'm a serial killer. I followed what the book said. I mean, this is really the moment I thought, yeah, you're just as dumb as Ridgeway when you really think that you have to go on and saying, well, if you know anything about serial killers, this is what they do, you know. He's mm. just, he's so insignificant and, like, I'm losing my shit with him now. I really am. <laughs> you know, um, he, he did something extraordinary in that he didn't get caught. But, you know, it, it was a... We made him out, like Adam and true crime fans and, you know, people that follow these unsolved cases, we made him out to be this, this big persona. And what we actually get is basically a little man who got caught because he threw a tantrum because the police said, uh, it's cold, we're, we're giving up. And so he had to actually go and sort of do something revolutionary because he didn't want to get put out to pasture. He wanted people to continue to chase him and he was upset that they were going to stop chasing him. So, you know, when he gets his final moment in in the sun he goes on and says well if you know anything about serial killers you know like I'm I'm the expert here you know and we're only halfway through this confession tape and I'm already frustrated and and you guys know what I I I want them to be extraordinary in their in what they do and they're just these vile creatures who just decide again and again and again that they have the right to decide if someone lives or dies and Mm. You know, he's saying all of this stuff, you know, that this is what serial killers do because I'm a serial killer. I don't know. It's just, oh, it's, it's just convoluted basically. Yeah. Well, after the defence lawyer corrects the judge saying it's trolling, not patrolling, even though it's trolling, <laughs> let's continue with Raider again coming in with a correction. All right. No, no, I wasn't working, sir. Oh. No, this was... No, this was off, off, off my hours. He's not coping, is he? No, he's not. And he's been actually quite succinct until he. And um, I have a stutter and people know that I have a stutter and people often comment to me like as if I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> he, he actually stutters there. So he says that repetitive sound several sing- single times. And this is a, a vocal nuance that I sort of pick up more than most people would because I'm so aware of it. I'm, I'm hyper aware of it, you know, and um, he's just showing that he's been thrown at his own game. So this isn't where he wants it to be at. He wants to sort of be the star of the show and do all of the talking, whereas the judge is doing more talking. So he's now sweating profusely. He's um, been standing up for so long, as, as we said, and there's been no breaks. This hasn't been, and now we'll stop for a recess and do count four or five or something. It's not like that. He is standing there for the entirety of all 10 counts and he is just getting exhausted. He's patting his forehead, God forbid, because it goes half, halfway back on his head, which I, I love a bald head, don't get me wrong there, but he's sweating <laughs> profusely now and I can imagine if he took off his jacket he would be absolutely drenched underneath but he's just getting all over the place now he's he's not thinking as clearly as he was he got a bit excited doing the last case with the woman and and the kids locked in the bathroom and now he's just sort of getting to a point it's like this isn't as fun as I had hoped it would be ah well the judge tries to get him back on track with Nancy Fox's case all right, so you basically uh, identified Nancy Fox as one of your uh, projects. What happened then? Uh, at first, uh, she was uh, spotted, and then I did a little homework. I dropped by once to check the mailbox to see what her name was, uh, found out where she worked. Uh, stopped by there once uh, at Hillsburg, 
kind of sized her up. I, the more I knew about a person, the, the more I felt comfortable with it. So I did that a couple of times. This is interesting to me. We're getting a bit more of an idea how he stalks his victims by checking their mail, where they work. It's pretty scary. It is, and to think that everything he did was almost legal. Like, yes, you're not allowed to touch people's mailboxes and stuff like that, but, um, you know, you could sort of look in and sort of see what you could read and things like that. You know, but she had no idea she was being hunted. She had no idea that... Also, he's a serial killer, so he's not going to care about breaking federal law of looking no, at the No, no, of course. But I'm just saying that um, there is legal ways that you, you can stalk someone, and this mm. is pretty close to those. I don't want to give people ideas on how, how to do it. He's done a good job here anyway you know but it's it's showing that he's actually doing more homework by making sure he knows who lives at the home now because as we know he's stuffed up every other time so far um he's he's seeing where they work he's trying to find where the moment is the best place to take her is it from leaving work is it when she goes out shopping on a tuesday night you know it's all of this sort of stuff and you know at every single scene so far there's been extra people so he needs to try and minimize that as as a major risk and so now he's learning to do more homework which is quite interesting yeah so yeah Let's continue. And then I just selected a night, which was this particular night, to try it, and it worked out. All right. Can you tell me what you did on the night of December 8th, 1977? I knocked at the, knocked at the door first to make sure to see if anybody was in there, because I knew she arrived home at a particular time from where she worked. Uh, nobody answered the door, so I went around to the back of the house, uh, cut the phone lines. I could tell that there wasn't anybody in the uh, north apartment. Uh, broke in and waited for her to come home in the kitchen. All right. Did she come home? Yes, she did. What happened? Uh, I confronted her, uh, told her there I was a, uh, had a problem, sexual problems, that I would have to tie her up and have sex with her. Ah. So he's finally admitted to further abuse, not just the binding and the killing. Yeah, so and it almost slipped out. You know, he finally admitted to something additional. So he hasn't said about any of the sex in all of the other mm. cases, and now he is. So, you know, but he's saying it as part of his story but not part of the action. So he's saying this is what he's going to do, not this is what I did. So there's still that element of distance he's, he's creating between his actions and, and himself, but we're getting closer. Yeah, and if fatigue is setting in, things like that are going to come yeah, out. 100%. Um. He then continues trying to make the narrative about his so-called courteous behaviour. She was uh, a little upset. Uh, We talked for a while. Uh, She smoked a cigarette. Uh, While while we smoked a cigarette, I went through her purse, uh, identifying some stuff. And she finally said, uh, well, let's get this over with so I can go call the police. And I said, okay. And she said, can I go to the bathroom? And I said, yes. Uh, She went to the bathroom. Came, and I told her when she came out to make sure that she was undressed. This is a bit of a running theme with him. He makes a big deal about all the actions of keeping them calm, talking to them, letting them have a cigarette, going to the toilet. Yeah, I mean, he wants to be a killer, but he doesn't want to be a monster, you know, and mm. most serial killers have this type of nuances, you know, and like Kemper, who actually brushed against the breast of one of his victims and apologised for doing that, even though what he was going to do next was far more heinous, um, you know, but they, they like to make sure that people know that they do have 
manners, you know, as, as quite unusual. I mean, with all of the serial killers I've spoken to over, over the years and killers and, and child pederasts and all these sort of stuff, um, none of them, except for Richard Ramirez, none of them have been anything but polite. Some of them have been forceful, you know, you must do this and I, and I won't talk about this and all this sort of stuff. But most of them have been polite and they never swear, they're never vulgar, again, except for Richard Ramirez. Um, you know, and this is what they sort of like to interpret and, and bring out at these sorts of events. You know, they will um, say yes, sir, no, sir. They will say thank you and please, but when offered a cup of coffee and things like that, they want to make sure that they do have these humanising aspects because they know they're not normal. They know that it's a facade, but by showing that they can do these sorts of things, it's supposed to make the rest of us think, oh, yeah, but that was a nice thing to do, you know, but you're Mm. about to rape her, you know. It's, yeah. Well, Radar then describes the murder of Nancy. When she came out, I uh, handcuffed her and uh, don't really remember whether sir. You handcuffed her? You had a pair of handcuffs? Yes, sir. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. What happened then? Well, anyway, I, had her, I handcuffed her, had her lay on the bed, and then I tied her feet. And then uh, I, I, I was also undressed to a certain degree. And then I got on top of her. And I reached over, took either either feet were tied or not tied. Anyway, I took I think I had a belt. I took the belt and then strangled her with a belt at that time. Here, Amanda, I've got to say, every murder gives us a little bit of more detail of what's happened. Until this point, I have never visualized him being undressed. We just got that morsel here, but it hasn't come out before. Yeah, but it's only to a certain degree. You know, again, he tried to humanise his behaviour. You know, he's saying I'm partly a monster and I'm partly undressed. So, you know, like he's, he's, he's trying to say that, you know, I'm not standing there with, with this raging erection. I know I keep saying that in this in, in this episode. Um, you know, he's, he's trying to make it less deviant than what it is, you know, and so he makes sure that he says he's only partially undressed. He's, um, you know, he's exposing the, his monster side, but he's keeping his human side too. You know, there's almost a, a, a poeticness to the ugliness of his words by him sort of um, alluding to what's going on but still trying to um, mask it as best he can. Hmm. All right. With with Nancy dead, he's asked to describe what he did then. All right, after you had strangled her, what happened then? Okay. Uh, After I strangled her with the belt, I took the belt off and retied them with pantyhose real tight, uh, removed the handcuffs and uh, tied those with... uh, with pantyhose, can't remember the colors right now. Uh, I think I maybe retied her feet. What they had not, and they were probably already tied. Her feet were, uh, and at that time, uh, uh, masturbated, sir. All right. There's a little interesting thing happening here. Every time he talks about a sexual act, he'll address the judges, sir. Yeah, I mean, and this is showing his issues that he has with sex. You know, he's uncomfortable talking about it. He doesn't shy away from the murder parts, but when he has to talk about the sex parts, it becomes like demure and 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 polite and he uses euphemisms for it you know it's, it's like bill clinton you know i did not have sexual relations they, they use these different terms to sort of take away the vulgarity of it and it's it's interesting because it sort of goes with that issues that he has with his sexuality and and the need for violence to be involved it's just his way of sort of dismissing that part of it And I bet you all never expected Bill Clinton to be mentioned in a true crime serial killer (laughs) podcast. 
Um, but those that are in the Patreon group know that I've used Bill Clinton a lot in the body language lessons I've done. So he does come up a lot. <laughs> mm. Apparently he does come up <laughs> a lot. Anyway, he's then asked if there was any other sexual assault. Had you had sexual relations with her? No, no, no. I told her I was, but I did not. What a strange grab for us to have off the Bill Clinton, Clinton thing. Uh, did you have any other sexual relations? I did not have sexual relations with that girl. Oh, that was good. It's that woman, but that's good. <laughs> <laughs> that was. I think that's been your best accent so far, Robert. Oh, there you go. Um, all right, that was a short clip. Nothing to do with Bill Clinton. You no. spotted something in there. Yes, I did, and um, this is why I'm doing some of these on camera too now. Um, when he denies that there was any other sexual relation, he actually closes his eyes. He doesn't want to even consider that. He doesn't want it to be on on the table. You know, it, it almost disgusts him either what he's thinking or what he didn't do or what he did do. But there's this, this shutting down when asked that question that he really didn't want to answer it. And does that mean he didn't do that or it's just because the idea repulses him? It could be either. I, I really couldn't say w which way it was, but there is something in that question that he did not want to answer, whether it's because he did some revolting sexual violence to her or because, you know, don't, don't, don't consider me doing things like that. That's revolting. I don't know which way it went, but something there repelled him. Okay, we're going to pick up this case next week where we'll continue with the confession and discuss the final three murders. Amanda Howard, thank you very much. Don't forget, if you want to support the Patreon page, go to patreon.com slash mwmconfessions, where you can get a range of bonuses. At the very least, the new episode's a week earlier than everyone else. We'll see you next week for the fourth and final part of BTK. See you then. Oh, so yeah. I've got to fit three murders into one episode. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I did that on purpose. <laughs> okay, no worries. I can do that. I can do that. <laughs> There's, um, well, you well, we've done three episodes. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.